I've realized that it's not, it's not until you have children of your own uh, that you really appreciate it when other uh, parents uh, tell you about how quickly they seem to grow up. And I've spoken to, to some mothers, Terry in, included at times, who talk about how they, how they wish that their, their little baby didn't have to grow up, that they wish that they could, they could always be a wee baby, and they look back at pictures when they were a little child. Yet on, on the other hand, they, they are delighted when they, they see their child develop, when they see their child learning to, to say new words and, and doing new things and, and all those little things which bring out their, their own um, personalities. But babies uh, cannot grow themselves, as it were, to grow and, and develop. A child, well, of course, you know, a child needs to, uh, to eat well. They need to get regular sleep. They need to exercise both their, their, their body and, and, and their mind. And, and nature, through God, has ordained that, that over a period of time, a child will grow from being a, a, a baby, an, an infant, into a mature adult. And the point, the point that the author of Hebrews is making in chapter 6 is that although the members of the church may have grown physically, we are growing physically, we are growing older, we are aging every day. Although the members of the church may have grown physically, many of them have failed to grow spiritually. At the closing of chapter 5, the author writes, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And contained, um, contained within chapter 6 are two verses. Two verses which have caused, uh, and which still cause believers to question, not only believers, but unbelievers, to question the security of salvation. And this is something that came out of the, the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, there was no security of salvation. It was all by works. But we have security in our salvation. But because of this, uh, it leads many to ask the question. We're going to come to the verses in a minute. And the question that people ask is, based on the teaching of eternal security, if someone becomes a Christian, are they always a Christian, even if they fall away? And that's the question that comes from this, these verses in chapter 6. And there are many ways in which we can approach this question. But for now, what I would like us to do for a few minutes is look primarily at the different ways in which verses 4 to 6 of chapter 6 have been interpreted. And, and to always keep in mind the audience. It's very important, the context and the audience to whom the author is writing. He was writing to Jewish Christians. He was writing to Christians who, are, who, who were capable of returning to the old Jewish system of worship. So have your Bibles open at um, chapter 6. Um, of, of Hebrews, we're going to be looking at this and, and a few other passages in, in the New Testament. And from those, uh, those verses uh, from chapter 6 where we read, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, remember it said it is impossible, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now one way in which this passage has been interpreted is by claiming that those in question were never, they were never truly believers in the first place. They were never saved. But some um, say that that approach would appear to be manipulating the words of the author. Here he is speaking about those who have been enlightened. Their minds have been opened to the truth. Those uh, to whom the gospel truths have become a, a, a reality. They understand the gospel. He is referring to those who have, who have shared or who have partaken in the Holy Spirit, whatever that will look like, which might indicate, this might indicate that they have been converted in and by the power of the Spirit and that their minds have been shaped by the word of God. However, what is vitally important is that there is no mention of salvation. There is no mention of salvation in what is given as these essential features of one who is capable of falling away. Therefore, it stands that the falling away in question does not apply to the child of God. This falling away does not apply to someone who has been saved. Now, I'm going to tease this out, okay? Another um, interpretation uh, pertains uh, um, or relates to the author referring to a merely hypothetical situation. Now, a hypothetical situation is when you ask a question, what if, therefore it's hypothetical. And the basis of this interpretation, the second interpretation, comes at the beginning of verse 6, and it's because of the use of the word if. Okay. However, in the Greek text, in the Greek New Testament, there is no use of the word if. It's a very small word, but it's very important. The author, when he was writing, was also speaking in the past tense. He was referring to those who have already fallen away. And the hypothetical approach is also further reinforced by what the author says in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things. In your case, things that accompany salvation. And there's the first use of that word salvation in this context. It's as though the author is stressing the seriousness of falling away from the faith that there are indeed dire implications for committing acts of apostasy, anything that is, is ungodly, but he encourages his audience that this is not the case with them. Yet, yet the hypothetical approach assumes that if a Christian could lose their salvation, there would be no hope for repentance. And in that approach, we once again ask the question, well, can a Christian lose their salvation? That's the question. That's the big question in this. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Which would lead to the conclusion that the hypothetical approach is flawed. But what we read in verse 9 is significant when we compare it with what we read in verses 4 to 6. And we will come back to that shortly. He's still with me. Okay, you're still with me. A third approach takes the stance that here we have a severe warning, okay? Attention, please, a severe warning for those who, having come to a knowledge of the Christian faith, have now openly turned their back on that faith. 
and by doing so are incapable of receiving repentance once again. Now this approach, this takes a bit of fleshing out, so try and stay with me in this one. Remember the context into which our author is writing. He is addressing Jewish converts to Christianity. And when asked the question, who was it from an earthly perspective who sent Christ to his, to, to the, uh, to his death on the cross, we ask that question, yet it was the Roman soldiers, yes, it was the Roman soldiers who, who, who drove the nails into the hands and the feet of our Lord, but let's consider once again what took place immediately before that. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel and to chapter 27 and verse 15. You'll find it on page 998 of the Pew Bibles. It's quite a, a lengthy section, so I'd encourage you to turn to it. Page 998. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27 and verse 15. And there we read, Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So whenever the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you, do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted the louder, Crucify him. Now the Jews were given a choice, and their stance was very clear. Crucify Jesus. Execute him as a common criminal. We want nothing to do with him. And in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6 we read, It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, etc., if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. And the tense in which the author uses the word crucifying is, and this is where our, our, in, in English we don't get this sense, the word crucifying is a present and it's a continual sense. He's saying you're constantly, constantly, you're constantly crucifying Jesus. He is saying that for those who, who fall away or return to the old faith of Judaism, that they are metaphorically putting themselves back in the position that the Jews were before Pilate. Their actions are in effect crucifying Christ all over again. And if they remain in that state of action, then they are continually crucifying Christ. And to continue in that state leaves no room once again for repentance. And the word used for falling away is parapensontis, which means to, to fall aside or, or fall away or having fallen away. Figuratively, it is to apostatize, to fall away from adherence to the facts of the faith. And this is the only time that that word is used in, in the New Testament. What he is saying, therefore, is that it is possible to commit such apostasy, such falling away, so that there is no hope for repentance. And the person in question, and as yet we have no proof 
that such a person existed because this is hypothetical. But the person in question has gone from believing in Christ with a head knowledge through partaking in the body of believers to becoming an open enemy of Christ. They have overtly hardened their hearts to the gospel and have become active, basically active rebels against the ways of Christ. They despise Christ. They disgrace his name. And if, the, if, if Christ were standing before them in the flesh, they would cry once again, crucify him. And it is my belief that they were never truly saved in the first place, quite simply because we are not told that they were. And what we, and we're, we're coming to the end soon, what we must not do is, is take one passage in Scripture and apply it generally to the, the whole of God's Word. We need to test Scripture with Scripture. And alongside what we read in, here in Hebrews 6, there are countless passages, countless passages which affirm the eternal security of the believer, even, even if they backslide or even if they doubt for a time. And from looking at what the text says, and more significantly, significantly from what it does not say, those to whom the author is referring have come to a head knowledge of Christ. Okay, they've become members of the church. They have experienced and they have enjoyed the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, but they, have, they are rejecting it, and they're still rejecting it. And sometimes we can still Rejected. We can have a head knowledge, we can enjoy the word of God, we can understand something of the Holy Spirit, but we reject it. And they rejected it because their knowledge only went as far as their head and it never reached their hearts. And verses 7 and 8 clearly show us how we see this very thing taking place in the life of a head knowledge church member. And there we read, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns or thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Again, a very clear picture of, of eternal life in heaven and hell, and that's just, that's what it is. And the, God's word tells us that by their fruits you shall know them. And that's an indication of somebody that, that is saved. By their fruits you shall know them. And here we have a, uh, by their fruits ye shall know them in the, uh, the, the authorized version. Here we have a, a metaphor of agriculture. And in many senses, this is close connections with what Christ teaches in, in the parable of the sower. We know that there are different types of soil, but still the same seed. And for one particular type of soil, when it receives the seed, the word of God, that is, it accepts it and it responds to it and in turn produces fruit. And in this context, in Hebrews, we are told that those who produce a crop will receive the blessings of God. And the production of crop and the blessings of God are evidence of the things that accompany salvation, which we read of in verse 9. There is the great difference between what we read in verses 4 to 6 and what we read in verse 9. In one case, there is salvation, verse 9, and the other there is not. And we're all one of those two people. And you see, the author is contrasting two very different people here. Those who have fallen away, who have returned to the old faith, and those who have genuinely accepted Christ as Lord. And it's clear that they have because the evidence is there. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that we are maturing as believers, that we are moving forward, that we are, we are producing fruit. 
And in this case, the author encourages them in their work and love towards others. That's how we bear fruit. And finally, in verses 13 to the end, we see that there is a, a, a need on our part to persevere until the end. And to persevere means to have faith. To persevere means to live in hope. And it also means to wait patiently for the eternal and everlasting blessings of God. It also means to rely fully upon God and fully upon the promises of his word. It was the, the Summer Olympics of, of 1992. Uh, it was the, the quarterfinals of the, the 400 meter sprint. Um, British athlete Derek Redmond was one of the favorites for the gold medal. He had won um, a couple of medals that year and he was one of the favorites for the gold. Uh, and I, 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 you can only imagine a lifetime of training had brought him to this point in the, the, the quarterfinals of the Summer Olympics. The starter, the starter gun fired, and the athletes, as they do, they burst out of the blocks. Halfway through the race, Derek Redmond was leading, then disaster struck. His hamstring uh, snapped, it went, and he just he collapsed onto the track. And you could just see, and you can watch the video of it, the agony on his, his um, tear-streaked face with both, with, was both physical and mental. And medical attendants, uh, I don't have a picture for it, but medical attendants began to run to assist him and Derek simply waved them away. He came to, to race and he was going to finish the race. He got to his feet and he started hobbling down the track. And the crowd were mesmerized. Officials didn't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, an older man ran onto the track. And he brushed off the officials who were trying to stop him. And he ran up beside Derek and he placed his arms around him. And the man was Derek Redmond's father, Jim. And Jim said, you don't have to do this, son. And Derek replied, yes, I do. Then we'll finish this race together, came the response from Derek's father. And arm in arm with Agony on Derek's face, tears in his father's. Derek and Jim continued down the track. Derek, Derek buried his face in his father's shoulder. His father's strong shoulders carried his son physically and emotionally. Jim waved away officials who tried to stop them. Finally, accompanied by a now roaring crowd, standing on their feet and applauding. You can just imagine Derek Redmond crossed the line. And it became the defining moment of the Barcelona Olympics. And of course, Derek could have, he could have given up. He could have refused his father's assistance and simply allowed the stewards to, to stretcher him off. But he was determined to finish the race. And the only thing that could get him to cross the finish line was that his father carried him there. And he allowed him to carry him there. In verse 19 of chapter 6 of Hebrews, we read, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And of course, the hope that we have was first founded in the covenant that God made with Abraham. That the entire world, we remember that the entire world will be blessed through him. And as Christians, we believe that the fulfillment of that blessing has come through Christ. And just like, like Derek Redmond was, was wounded uh, in the race, it took the strength of the Father to carry him across the finishing line. And with an infinite greater comparison, the Father 
the heavenly father saw to it that his son would complete the task that was set before him. And the completion of that task was fulfilled in Christ's resurrection from the dead. Christ came to call sinners to repentance. He came to call us, you and I, to trust in him, to have faith in him. He came to redeem his bride, the church, all those to whom God has chosen to bless with the gift of his salvation. And our hope, and be assured of this today, our hope, my hope, is in what Christ has done. Christ has run the race. He has run ahead of us in the race and he has already won the prize on our behalf. And we go on to read in chapter 12 of Hebrews and the author tells us to fix our eyes upon him. That we are to run with perseverance the race that is set for us. Let us not become concerned with whether we will get to heaven or not. For as a believer, you will. We will. For Christ has gone before us and is preparing a place there for each of us who love him with all our hearts. And we, we renew our commitment to him through what we do this morning. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would bring enlightenment to our minds. That we would understand it. That you would apply it to our hearts, minds, bodies and spirits. Assure us today as believers that there is, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That we cannot lose our salvation because it is in what Christ has done, not in what we have done. Praise you for that, Lord. We also pray, Father, that you would help us to be enlightened to the truth of your gospel today. If, Father,